Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Julia Stetter, your host, and today we'll be talking to Marcel Schmidt about his new book Autopoiesis und Literatur, or in English Autopoiesis and Literature, The Short History of an Interminable Procedure. It analyzes works from Heinrich von Kleist and Franz Kafka for characterizing the concept of autopoiesis. Mr. Schmidt, welcome to the show. Hello, and uh, thank you for having me. <laughs> the pleasure is mine, and I'm looking especially forward to this interview because I've come across the term autopoiesis several times before, but never really got the time to understand it in detail. So, but first, um, could you start by telling us a bit about yourself? That is, what and where you studied and how you became interested in autopoiesis? Okay, sure. Um, so I actually had a pretty unlinear career. So I was at some point a car salesman. I was a high school teacher for many years. Um, I studied history, art history, and German studies at the University of Zurich in Switzerland. And that's also where I started my PhD program in um, German literature. But I always like, or actually spent more than half of my PhD time abroad at New York University, at Yale University, where I also met my co-advisor, Professor Rüdiger Kampe. And so I also work on very different topics. Uh, one topic is like, um, that is connected to my um, studies uh, in history, like cars and technology. I'm actually working on a book right there. And I published a book on the life reform movement. And I'm now working on a new project on seriality. That is my kind of habilitations project. And so at the moment, I am a visiting postdoctoral scholar at uh, the German department at Brown University. And I'm also a fellow of the Swiss National Science Foundation. So maybe about autopoiesis, um, it's kind of difficult to say. Maybe it was the same as you also said earlier, it was just like this, I always saw this uh, term and I was wondering what it is. And then at the end of my uh, master's degree, um, I had to write a paper for like the finals and that paper and I choose the topic autopoiesis. And that's kind of how I got interested in it and it's also i'm interested because autopoiesis um had as like my career also a very unlinear career so it's like you know from biology to theory of cognition to social studies to systems theory and so on and it always also fascinated me that it is actually describing something that is not very easy to describe or something that is not very easy to define Wow, sounds all quite interesting, impressing places and people and life. Um, so uh, for someone who has not thought about autopoiesis before, um, how would you explain this rather complex concept? And are there similarities between the use of this term within literary studies and other academic fields, as you mentioned, bio biology or something? Yes, and I actually also would um, 
um, like explain it actually through the history because that's quite interesting. So actually, it is the the, the term was uh, invented or first used at least by a Chilean biologist Humberto Maturana and Francisco Varela. Um, but the fun part is they already had actually kind of trouble to f- define it, so they use it like on a basic level to describe that the human cell has all the material for self-production in itself. And from there, they used it also like self-production as a cognitional self-development. So that's the way they used it. And then, and that's very interesting, uh, Niklas Luhmann, who for some reason seems to know know the work of um, uh, Maturana and Varela, and as far as I know, they even like, you know, knew each other personally, he used it to describe the fact that systems in his systems theory are able to reproduce themselves. And then it's kind of like interesting. The next transition was actually, it was going somehow into like Germanics. So especially like literary theory and Germanics, and I assume it is, or I kind of prove in my book that it is through the influence of systems theory. Although the first one who used autopoiesis in um, in uh, literary theory, as far as I know, is Dietrich Schwanitz, who was like a professor of English studies, but in Germany. So it is kind of a very weird, um, um, weird history. And that's kind of a result also of my book. They all have trouble to define it. So of course you can like basically define it as something like that is self-production or also self-reference. But I think it's easier sometimes to describe, and that's what all people who are dealing with the term actually do, is to or define is to use just like different examples. And there are a few like very nice examples. Um, I can maybe if you if you like I could make one example. Yeah, please. One, <laughs> one would be like from the from the German uh, punk rock band the Ärzte. They have a song called uh, "Junge." I think it's like maybe ten years ago or eight years ago. And so in this song, they. Um, they actually sing out of the position of a mother who is very annoyed by the punk son, the son who does not want to like live like the parents wish the son. I yeah, I, I think I, I I know the song. It um and the song um uh, she asks why didn't you have learned anything? Isn't exactly, exactly, yeah, and. Yeah. The- Yes, exactly. And in the refrain, they they always say, and always that that like cruel music and those loud guitars. And it's and exactly in that moment, the loud guitars are really playing. And that is for me like a core autopoietic moment. So it is like there are several dimension who are actually interacting with each other and it is hard to describe and also hard to define what happens at the moment. But you see, as a as a you know, if you listen to a song, you can oh yeah, that's that's weird and it's actually funny. I think uh, um, autopoetic moments are not always, but often very funny. Yeah, I see. So um, one out of the two main texts you analyze in your book uh, is a very short one from uh, Heinrich von Kleist. And um, could you maybe begin by telling us what this text is all about? 
So the short text from Heinrich von Kleist, uh, Colin Cham, über die allmähliche Fertigung der Gedanken beim Reden. In English, um, it is translated in On the Gradual Construction of Thoughts During Speech. So it is kind of a short treatise addressed to um, a Kleist friend, um, uh, Otto August Rühle von, von Lilienstern. And um, it is actually on the development of thought through speech. The text does not have um, like a strict logical structure. It is more like presented in the mode of a um, stream of consciousness. So it like kind of moves from one thought to the next. And it illustrates the gradual construction um, actually through several like discourses, disjointed discourses. And at the end, I would say it is actually a text that performs like the, the process it describes, namely construction. Yeah. And um, so, um, and so this text, you also identify uh, several dimensions um, that are relevant in terms of autopoiesis. And um, one of these dimensions is addressing so um, who's being addressed on class text and um, how does uh, class evaluation of addressing influence his own writing style? Um, yes, the um, second question is a bit difficult, but the first, I guess, like that's, I, I can um, try to answer that. So the, as I said, the text is addressed to Rühle von Lilienstern and um, the, the uh, kind of the general argument at the beginning of the text is um, quite simple. So in order to um, initiate the construction of thoughts, you must have an audience. You must have somebody you can take to address the text to. And Kleist suggests uh, that the construction of thoughts works best when you talk with somebody about it. And actually, it doesn't matter whatever it is, but um, so it <clears throat> so it happens. Yeah, that that you have not not it happens, but it's like in order to get to the point, you kind of have to address the text, and so it is kind of like something to stabilize the procedure that is the gradual construction. But of course, as I will or you know, if you read the text, of course, you will realize that never happens. There is still no definition. However, it seems that Kleist is suggesting addressing in order to start the gradual uh, construction. So um, without the people he addresses the matter to, he cannot find anything out. So addressing is actually for, uh, um, um, for starting like the, the construction of thoughts. So it's like being helpful to him. I mean, uh, I think you also write about um, uh, him addressing his sister and somehow it helps him, doesn't it? This uh, talking to his sister is helpful to Kleist in order to uh, reorganize his thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. Because actually he's telling, I mean, it's, it is kind of mean to his sister and to Rüle von Lilienstern because he actually even tells they don't even have to understand the topic. So he talks about mathematics with his sister, and, uh, but tell, tell like the sister doesn't know anything about mathematics or like 
some I don't know what what else they are talking about. But he just needs an audience in order to start his own like stream of consciousness, his own thoughts. So um, another dimension you deal with is interrupting. And um, here Kleist gives also several examples in his texts. Um, but between them, there's always something like an interruption. And could you maybe say um, what this means? What this yeah, means? And um, do the interruptions have a special function? Yes, um, I would say, yeah, they have a, a special um, a function. And for like in terms of like the meaning, of the interruption, I would just like quickly uh, um, give an overview what are the stories of the text, where there are many. So like from the direct address to Rulli, Kleist moves on to like um, to another example of gradual construction of thoughts that involves um, his sister. And after the example involving his sister, the next um, uh, the next now is a historical example, namely Mirabeau's speech um, in France, and then he moves on um, to the class in Flas to actually a um, um, to a like an example from physics. That's a class in Flask is a condenser of electrical energy, and then he recounts the fable of La Fontaine, and then he talks about transmission, and then about speech, uh, speaking in society, and at the end about examination situations at the university or at schools. So it is actually an endless chain of examples, means whenever one examples could come to an end, means when they could paraphrase or metaphorize the gradual construction, when the example could stabilize the meaning of the gradual construction, Kleist moves on to another example, an example that most likely doesn't have to do anything with the, the last example, and so on. And I think that is Fascinating and actually has a lot to do with the situations um, we also like in our daily life. We try to define something what is very difficult to define, and usually we live, like jump from one example to another because we will always find a better example. But through the jumping, through the interruption of the Gedankengang of um, the, the, the chain of thought, we sabotage ourselves in our like goal of giving a definition, and that's exactly what Kleist is doing in his text. And that is like where I'm interested in these like interruptions. Amazing. So a bit like day-to-day -day communication when you also use these examples. Um, yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, and uh, so you also look at repetitions. Um, And uh, you just mentioned also the Mirabeau example. Um, maybe uh, could you tell about the repetition within this example and yeah, what it means for Kleist? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think it's not that the, the, the question of repetition is not only connected to the Mirabeau example. So, um, yeah, maybe you can choose another no, example. No, sure. I, will, I will come back to the Mirabeau example, but I think interestingly, it is also what he says right before the Mirabeau examples, namely, ich kehre zur Sache zurück, means I do return to the actual topic. But that is like, that's not true because every example is the actual topic. And so every example just repeats over and over again the same but like in a different way 
So it is not so much different from like the interruption example we, we, we or interruption we just talked about, but through the repetition of the gradual construction or yeah, it, through this repetition, it is kind of performed. And um, so in performing what it describes, the text obstructs the possibility of a definition. And Instead, like Kleist continues on with an, an, an example after another, never re- re- reaching a definitional point. And, but it is like in itself, it's always a repetition of the same topic, but only in other um, examples. And um, the same can actually could also be said for many other short texts from Kleist, like the Marionettentheater or Marionette Theater, where it's about like description and definition of what grace is but the graceful moment can never be reached uh, consciously so you always have to retelling the moment um of grace in a different story to approach something like grace but you will never get there you will always find a better example and so you can you're actually repeating the procedure with the result of an approximation but as an interpreter, you will never find the core. And I think that's the same for like um, um, on the gradual construction of thoughts, the, the, the text. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, the second major text you discuss in your book is um, Franz Kafka's novel, The Trial, also quite popular. And within this novel, you particularly look at its centerpiece, uh, Before the Law. And this text deals with a man who wants to gain entry to the law but cannot get through. Um, and could you say something about um, the relation between Before the Law and the rest of the novel? I guess you um, mentioned the word preamble. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, I would say Before the Law um, anticipates the structure of the fragmentary novel. So a preamble defines, kind of defines, I mean, that's probably a kind of a, a very short definition, but I would say it defines how the law should be read, like something like the Geltungsbereich of the law, the purview of the law. And before the law defines somehow how the novel should be read. And of course, as you can imagine, that's where the problems are already it starts because the content of before the law is anything than clear and that's why it's so fascinating paradoxical so the advice of before the law is somehow a non-advice so that's i would say it is kind of a preamble for the trial but it is at the same time a very weird preamble because it doesn't really It so shows how kind of like on a structural level, how the text is working or, um, but it doesn't really, um, it's not a clear advice. And um, one main term you use for um, describing uh, Kafka's trial is a procedure of second order. And as I understand it, the procedure of second order is a kind of Mizonabim structure which means basically that uh, Kafka's novel is not only to be interpreted, but rather already contains an interpretation of interpretation. Um, is this right? Or could you develop this idea a bit further? Yeah, sure. Um, so I 
probably will start um, not by Kafka here. Um, actually, so the idea of a second order is actually kind of a simplification of Luhmann's idea. And I think Luhmann's idea is based here on Spencer Brown. So that means so an observation, uh, so a, a um, second order observation means more or less like observation of the observation. And I actually more adapting it to how the secondary literature observes the trial. So in my case, it is Walter Benjamin, or you can also say Werner Hamacher observes Walter Benjamin's observation. So what I found out that all, especially in observing before the law, actually don't reveal the blind spot or whatever, but rather doubling what Kafka is doing. So actually... Benjamin does not define what is going on, but rather he's, he uses the same parabolic picture as Kafka uses, just or like an, or just another metaphor. And I even would state it's the same for Kafka too. So in the cathedral chapter, the Dom Kapitel, there is an interpretation enclosed, the discussion between Kay and the priest, that it actually complicates the legend. Um, before the law and not like helping us to understand before the law the so the hermeneutic observation are at the end senseless they do not lead to a clear interpretation however they adapt the procedure of like something like a mystical or not so clear exegesis so kafka does does it benjamin does it and there's, it seems also for me, there is no possibility to get a hold on the interpretation. The only possibility to get close to the legend before the law is through an adaption. And this adaption seems to be endless. I mean, endless is probably the wrong word, but seems just to be inter, like uh, repeated by Benjamin, by Hamacher, by myself, um, writing about that text. Yeah, uh, interpreting uh, Kafka is always a bit difficult, I guess, and finding an exact interpretation, uh, but fascinating. Okay, so um, one last question. Um, to sum up, um, could you repeat the key results that you have found in your study of Kleist and Kafka and clarify again what they tell us about autopoiesis? So I would say autopoiesis is not describing a singular function. So how the function is described is highly dependable on who is asking. Biologists, theory of cognition, system theory, literary theory, etc. Every discipline seems to have explanations for self-creation or self-reference that are connected to their own epistemological interests, like their own Erkenntnisinteresse. So interestingly, most of the disciplines try to explain autopoiesis ex nihilo, means out of nothing. <laughs> and that's actually funny for me because, so therefore, the definition of autopoiesis is, is itself autopoietic. So it, it is out of nothing itself produced. So, and even I don't really give a definition, and some people also have criticized that in my book, uh, because I have more like of a historical view. And for that, I would say autopoiesis could be used for something I already mentioned at the beginning of this interview of something that is like hard to describe, that is probably even harder to define. 
And that is very obvious for uh, for me. And you know, we just t- talked about it. How difficult it is like to to proceed with with Kafka and actually also with Kleist. And there is something in those texts that is referring to itself that is even like to some level transcend, transcendent. But um, you can describe it, you can adapt it, but it is not definable. And for me, um, autopoiesis is actually a term for that describing, first of all, of course, somehow like self-reflection, but also describing the problem of defining that self-reflection. So since I have the position of an observer, I can tell you that I cannot define, but only describe in another example and another example. And that is actually what I did in my book. Oh, okay, Mr. Schmidt, I um, really appreciate you taking the time today. And it's an important book of yours. And I can only recommend it. So um, thanks a ton for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for um, that very, very nice and interesting interview. Thank you. <laughs>